0: I was chatting on Telegram, and this will come up later, with Pretty Flacco, who's a friend of the show who lives in Turkey. And Flacco has started a fundraiser on geyser.fund, which is a fundraising website a la Patreon that accepts Bitcoin. And this fundraiser is to provide earthquake relief because there was a 7.8 magnitude earthquake in the southeast of Turkey on February 6th. 20,000 people are dead. It's a huge disaster. And so Flacco wants to donate this money to a local charity called... ABAP.org, which is a Turkish charity that he believes is very reputable. And so he has a mechanism where if you send sats to this project or to him on chain, he'll then transfer it to Lira and send to this charity that he thinks is very reputable, and he'll provide a receipt for it. You know, there's trust involved here. At the same time, I just think Flacco is really a great person and is trying to involve the Bitcoin community and some important earthquake relief. But there's some interesting context about what's happening here, because apparently this charity that he's supporting, opop.org, they actually have raised more money than the official government charity that's run by the interior ministry because there are concerns that the government is not handling the crisis well and it's become kind of politicized. And so it feels like very uncertain and tense what's actually happening there. And I think that often with tense political situations and I think Turkey is in a tense situation because Erdogan has been in power for I believe over a decade now and he hasn't said that he's, you know, president for life yet. But he did recent jail and disqualify the big opposition candidate to his regime. So, it looks like he's going to stand in the way of a democratic system that would vote him out. So I imagine that a stressful event like this earthquake and public outrage and sadness over what's happened, this is throwing fire onto a pretty tense situation.
1: It must be something to have a real appreciation for that space now. You were just recently over there. So to see big news like this, I mean, it must hit a little bit
0: harder. It's hard to imagine because I was in uh, Turkey over last summer and it's just such a beautiful place. And I have so many any uh, fond memories there and you know, met so many wonderful people and was there with my family. just the first vacation we'd taken with a baby. It was just such a special experience. And then to imagine just this disaster happening there, it feels so sad and, you know, and tragic because in addition to the loss of life, large portions of Turkey are just historical sites. Dig down deep and you find the remains of 10 layers of civilization. And so every earthquake there is also going to damage what we can draw from the past and archaeological things as well. It adds another dimension to the tragedy, I think. Indeed. So
1: uh, some links and resources in the show notes for that. I guess we don't really need to make it a Bitcoin angle just to note that it happened, but there, I guess, may be a bit of a Bitcoin story.
0: Well, I mean, it's very difficult to raise donations internationally using the traditional financial system because this charity would need a U.S. bank account to receive U.S. donations, and then it would send from that bank account using an expensive SWIFT transaction to their Turkish bank account, which might take seven days. So there's a lot of friction in that system. Whereas with Bitcoin, it can go directly from your wallet on your phone or your computer to Flacco's wallet in Turkey, and then one hop into their banking system, as opposed to, who knows, uh, seven or eight hops using the traditional banking system. Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on February 10th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here as always, sometimes with,
1: <laughs> hey, it's me, Chris, back by popular demand.
0: <laughs> yes, we were, we were roasted for that dad only episode last week. No, I'm just kidding. I don't think we were. On this week's episode, we're going to discuss the UK government's Bitcoin. This is actually an article sent to me by a non-bitcoiner. So, if you are the bitcoiner in your social group, people will send you articles like this. Local Bitcoins, the decentralized peer to peer-ish Bitcoin exchange is shutting down after I think over ten years or so almost. Binance, the offshore crypto exchange ran by C Z is basically completely cut off from the US dollar banking system now. And this looks like it's probably part of a coordinated effort to push Bitcoin and crypto businesses out of the TradFi banking system. Welcome to Shugpoint 2.0. In economics, we have an interesting article about how a former Fed trader doesn't think the Fed can really control liquidity conditions, which they claim is sort of their mandate these days. In privacy, Telegram, the communication app that bills itself as being private, is probably not private, at least from the Kremlin. In Bitcoin education, the Cold Guard Q1 hardware wallet is out, and it looks awesome. So let's talk about hardware wallets. Why would you want an awesome beast of a wallet like this? And we also have Bitcoin Optech 237, which seems to be mostly focused on ordinals again, which we mentioned last week. Then we have some boosts and feedback, and that's our show. That's
1: quite the show. Plus, we'll learn today why I am so bullish on BrickCoin, just, I'm going all in. I'm stacking Britcoin over here. Well, as soon as I can, obviously. Those are things that happen behind the scenes that we don't get access to, but you got to imagine there's essentially a presale. There's got to be.
0: I think it may only unlock after a decade. So when a institution says we're going to do this within 10 years, my take is that's never going to happen.
1: We are in the realm of tokens and coins, my friend. That's 10 years of hype. That's 10 years of YouTube videos, 10 years of tweets, 10 years of conferences. You just hype it, hype it, hype it. This is great. I just got to sell before they're actually supposed to deliver.
0: This story comes out of a missive from the Bank of England and the UK Treasury. Essentially, there's been a consultation paper that suggests that Britain may need a digital pound in the future. The pound is the British unit of currency. This is crazy on many levels, but I think in the case of Britain, it's particularly bonkers because the British pound used to be the world's reserve currency prior to 1920 because the British empire was this global empire. They drove a lot of trade. They also, I think, secured shipping lanes kind of in a similar way to how the U.S. does today. And they were also a center of finance. London was the financial capital of Europe. And in some ways, it still is, or it was until Brexit, which was quite recently. So when I describe this situation, you can imagine, okay, well, you've got this global empire, they're doing lots of trade. You know, there's a lot of international finance because it's an empire. They have this relationship where their colonies send raw materials to their sort of imperial capital. It's this extractive relationship. Well, that actually does require a lot of international Currency and finance to run and denominating it in your own currency. That kind of makes sense. So it sounds a lot like the US euro dollar slash petrodollar system today. But what happened after 1920 is that Britain as a share of the global economy, shrank because a lot of its imperial possessions disappeared. And this created kind of a new structure of international trade and finance, where the dollar actually became more and more important, and the pound less and less so. And so I think in many ways, Britain has never dealt very well with its loss of imperial power and importance, because now the United Kingdom, these are just some small islands off the coast of Europe. They're no longer really internationally significant like they used to be. And I think they kind of haven't internalized this yet. And there's this sense that the pound is an important currency. Yet the crisis in the British gilt market last year, that demonstrated that in fact, no, the pound is not a particularly important currency. Because in that crisis, the Bank of England, their monetary guidance did not match market expectations. And as a result, many market participants started dumping government bonds. And this caused their government bond market to become non-functional very quickly, which briefly resulted in their entire pension system that has a kind of leveraged investment strategy involving government bonds to briefly be insolvent as well. So this kind of demonstrates that if one press release can destabilize your entire financial system or your entire sovereign debt market, then you're not really a very big global player.
1: That's just breakfast for Bitcoin. (laughs) A little (laughs) bad news is just breakfast. I don't know. I'm still bullish because, you see, what the bank tells me is that digital currencies are showing that people have kind of a market need for a tool like this, but you see, they can't trust any of them. They need Bitcoin because that's the one they could trust. It's an issue of trust, and that's how they're going to sell it. Don't pay attention to the wild market. What is what is that, a coin run by a private individual? What is that, a, co- a coin run by a community? That's weird. Don't do that. You want one that's run by your trusted institutions. We've been here for hundreds of years making sure things go right.
0: And I think you've nailed why this project is at least going to be a failure and most likely will never even get off the ground, which is that the people proposing it don't really understand that a digital pound would not simply be a more popular version of their analog currency that lives on the balance sheets of financial institutions, they're kind of looking at Bitcoin and seeing all the best properties, the way it can be traded peer to peer, the way that you don't need these costly intermediaries to validate peer to peer transactions and to sort of validate and control the ledger. At the same time, they can't accept the implications of that system, which frankly are terrifying. This is a completely neutral, free, open system. It means people can do whatever they want. And that means mostly good things, but also some terrible things. And so they talk about in this article, how Of course, you have to be able to trust your money. So, of course, you would want anti-money laundering controls So you know that, you know, this money isn't being used for bad stuff. And that's a completely backwards statement. Actually, the best money is the money that criminals use because criminals need very strong property rights or they understand that their property rights can be taken from them because they don't have them. Legally, their funds are ill-gotten. So what currency is used for crime? It's the U.S. dollar. And the reason it's used for crime is because its network is so big that it's really useful. And even with the attempts at anti-money laundering by authorities, the network effect of the dollar is so huge that it's the best money with the best properties at this moment in time. A digital pound or a digital dollar would have fewer of those good properties because it would have to be centrally controlled and therefore your property rights would be weakened. The more decentralized the money, the better your property rights. The more centralized the money, the worse your property rights. I was just reading about four days ago,
1: Uh, this happened longer back in July, but just four days ago, I was reading about the HSBC money laundering scandal that happened in summer of 2022. And it. Was essentially them coming, coming clean and having to pay a $1.9 billion fine for some money laundering they did back in 2012. So in 2012, they laundered billions of dollars. Specifically, I know one of the ones that really stood out to me was, uh, 881 million was to various drug cartels in Mexico. And that was one of many incidents. So they, you know, we're talking the, the numbers here are huge in terms of the money and the, and the individuals that were pumping the money through the bank were drug cartels and drug buyers and sellers. So that's back in 2012, and then in 2022 they finally, you know, end up having to pay the piper, and they 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 spend 1.9 billion dollars, but they've. It's like they've institutionalized that. They've moved beyond that was 2012. They, they had years to prepare for that cost. And it's a small amount to them. It's not even a slap on the wrist. And then when they tell us about trust and safety and security and anti-money laundering, all of us, when we listen to that, we start queuing up these stories from our memory because we all have heard of these stories now. We know what bull crap it all is.
0: I think this was the story where there were U.S. banks on the border with Mexico that had these special teller windows that could accept a certain size brief- briefcase that the cartels used to deposit cash into the bank so they could just slide the briefcase through the window. They didn't have to open it and take all the cash out in the bank so they could kind of accept money faster. But the thing is, I don't think that we should be shocked when bad people use money. Obviously, people are going to use money, good and bad. So that's going to happen. The problem is that by attempting to create a system where only good people can use money, where you can kind of debank or break money for bad people, this is not a good idea. Because now you create this moral hazard where there has to be political institutions that decide who are good people and who are bad people. And since excluding groups from the financial system is such a superpower, it's the monetary equivalent of launching a a drone strike on somebody. I mean, you can kill people if you remove access to banking because they can starve or their businesses can't function. And then they go out of business and then there's unemployment and that creates all these other issues. So the issue here is that the banking system and the U.S. government's approach to regulating it has become so centralized and so concerned with the political activities of what people are doing. You know, if we consider crime to be sort of a political activity, you know, it's like, what is law? That we're feeling the uh, side effects of these central authorities who are kind of deciding who can, who's allowed to use the system. And it seems now that these controls that have been laid in for
1: money laundering and stopping crime, they're kind of just being ratcheted up and they're being applied to other areas of the financial system to exert control and pressure that is outside of any law process. It's outside any elected officials oversight. It just seems to be something happening at the bureaucratic level to make, you know, payday loan companies life a little bit harder for example, and just do things that almost weaponize the system at a more local level. Like in the, on this show, we've talked about how the SWIFT system has been weaponized and how we've weaponized the financial system against Russia and the ramifications of that long term. But there's also a more local
0: version, and now it seems to be
1: impacting crypto companies as well.
0: Right. And this feeds into two of our stories, because LocalBitcoins, which is a sort of decentralized peer-to-peer Bitcoin exchange, it's essentially a Helsinki company that runs a custody, an intermediary platform where you can create offers to buy and sell Bitcoin on the platform, and then people can take your offer. And LocalBitcoins will help the escrow for the transaction. And so because you have this escrow service that's kind of watching the transaction, it encourages people to be honest did not attempt to just steal money on the platform. And they are shutting down. They're going to be shutting down in a year. And so users have a year to get any funds that they've left on the platform off. This was an amazing platform back in the day. It was super useful. But then in, I think, 2019, they added KYC. And the moment they added KYC, it was not useful anymore because it was always more expensive than just doing KYC at an exchange and buying and selling on an exchange with a big order book because there's less liquidity on a peer-to-peer system. So the real reason to do it was you didn't want to have to deal with the risk of KYC or the cost or the speed of dealing with an exchange and sending fiat to the exchange and then they credit your account and you trade. You know, so it was a great service, but you could kind of. see the writing on the wall in 2019 that this wasn't going to work out. You know, they're doing a bit of custody here, and so that means they're subject to regulation. Yeah. And you knew they were
1: probably under some pretty intense scrutiny too, because we have seen local Bitcoins mentioned in some court cases where I, we talked about one on this, sh- on this particular show, in fact, where local Bitcoins was used in there. And I, you got to figure over and over again, it was showing up on the FBI's radar.
0: And I think that shutting down and giving users a long window to get your funds out is a great exit. So kudos to local Bitcoins. I hope that. You did well in your tour of service in Bitcoin, but it's time to go. It's time to give up on these centralized options and start to move towards decentralized exchanges, things like BISC, things like RoboSats, other. Platforms that allow people to move peer to peer. I agree,
1: but it is really pretty nice too to have something that can facilitate in person exchanges as well. We've we've heard from listeners who just have bought their Bitcoin that way, and it just that's what works for them. I think we need an, a wallet app that can do mesh networking. And when you're just in the same area, they discover each other. You know, you have to be in a special buy-sell mode or something. Because I'm picturing like a meetup. Say we had a, a Bitcoin dad meetup and some people wanted to buy and sell some sats from each other. It'd be really nice if technology could facilitate that. If there was some kind of way to make that nice and seamless in person. So that way we're not just limited to things like online options.
0: I think the difficulty with like a peer-to-peer in-person exchange is finding the person. And so local bitcoins was really useful because even if you didn't buy on their platform, you could search the offers and contact people. Mm-hmm. And then you could mm-hmm. contact them outside of local bitcoins and be like, okay, hey, let's meet up. And you meet up in a relatively public place. So you're not too worried about a group of people jumping you and beating you up and taking all your Bitcoin. But what's amazing is just how often this worked. Like, it's incredible how few scams there were on this platform, even in a place like, say, Nigeria, where it was super popular because Nigerians were just constantly buying Bitcoin. Sending it to China, and then I guess they were buying goods to import to Nigeria. This was just so many Nigerian traders. I think I bought my first sats from a Nigerian trader who was doing this, actually.
1: (laughs) I feel like there's kind of going to be a hole in the ecosystem after they shut down. It's a shame because it it means less access for some people. For some people that needed that, that was a really great option.
0: And everyone's losing access, including Binance, because Molly White's beautiful Web3 is going great website as a little post from the 6th of February, where now Binance can essentially not access US dollar bank transfers. Now, this is Binance Global. I think that Binance US can still access US dollar banking. But there was a bulletin that Signature Bank was not going to allow Binance to transact in amounts under $100,000, which is weird because you'd imagine that probably most wire transfers would be under $100,000. And now they have no bank access. So this is Very similar, I think, to the sort of pressure that was on local bitcoins.
1: Interesting, huh? Just all kind of really coming together around the same time, which I find to be fascinating. It's not like the beginning of this bear market, a lot of the enforcement actions were happening at one institution and then they go knock on the next door and they go knock on the next door and they go knock on the next door sequentially but what we seem to be seeing now is multiple institutions really have their well the SEC's boot on their neck
0: and this looks like we might be seeing operation choke point 2.0 operation choke point 1 was a unofficial Obama era justice department fincen policy where bureaucrats essentially unbanked odious industries in the united states they kicked Sex work, pornography, some firearms companies, gambling, lots of gambling companies off of the US banking system. They basically told banks, if you bank naughty companies, we're going to investigate you and it's going to be a real pain. And the banks regulated just automatically saying, hey, it's our discretion who we do business with. So we don't want your pornography doing business on our platform. And because these were odious businesses, no one raised any complaint, but now they're coming for crypto businesses too. And this already happened. I think in 2014 or 2015, there was a wave of crypto companies getting unbanked. And the reason Coinbase is a big deal today is because Coinbase managed to keep a hold of their bank account. What determined a successful crypto company in these earlier happenings was a company that was able to keep U.S. dollar banking alive. And some companies kind of got around this a little with stablecoins. You know, Tether got really popular in this time, and that was because Bitfinex had issues with banking. And so creating a dollar crypto stablecoin was incredibly useful for them and enabled them to continue operations.
1: And I think it's probably worth saying that this is a pattern that we see from the SEC whenever there's an industry like this kind of forming. This is a pattern where they come in and they essentially create regulation through enforcement. And in this particular case, it seems to be really well coordinated.
0: In an article from Nick Carter, Nick has helpfully put together a list of essentially aggressive actions from various government agencies, including the FDIC, Senator Warren, The U.S. Fed, the DOJ is selectively performing investigations on uh, crypto banks to see if they can find violations of the law. So this looks like a coordinated pattern of enforcement. And like in Operation Choke Point 1, no one's going to complain because it's all crypto companies and... And they have the shadow of FTX. FTX is bad. Right. And that is, it seems like being brought up
1: in this, doesn't it? Is that, well, you know, with the situation with FTX showed us, what we learned is that we have to take action. It seems like this has given them the green light because it... The timeline starts with, like you said, Warren back in December, but then after like January and late January, it is daily something, something happens, something changes. I mean, it really picks up right there for a bit until we, here we are now, uh, where Paxos's application, which is the stablecoin provider for, who is it? Binance. They've also got the boot. <laughs> like it's just really something, man. Part of me feels like it's necessary. A lot of these companies, you know, they screwed around and now they're going to find out. Chuck
0: point one had a lot of invisible casualties because I recall reading that prostitutes we're using Craigslist to screen their clients because they could meet them online and kind of chat a little bit to see if this person seemed dangerous or something. And so this actually improved the safety of sex workers. They also didn't need to be exploited by a pimp who often provides physical protection against clients but will also often use that sort of violence against prostitutes as well to kind of, you know, take a large portion of their earnings or keep them associated with that pimp. There was really a lot of benefit from being able to use online systems to screen clients and to accept payments. But Chokepoint closed that door for sex workers. And as a result, sex work got more dangerous after 2013, not less.
1: You don't have to tell me. I mean, what? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but what are the knockdown effects of this uh, attack on crypto banking? Well, I think that there's been a lot of venture capital investment in crypto companies. And I think that this is a way to frighten investors away from investing in crypto companies. Is that a good or a bad thing? I don't know. I think a lot of that investment went into garbage scam projects. So maybe there's some silver linings here. At the same time, I think that to be frank, if you're going to be a company today, you need a US dollar bank account. The US dollar is still the dominant currency in the world. And so if we're moving into a future where crypto businesses or exchanges or on-ramps cannot really function because they can't get U.S. dollar banking, then this definitely could slow Adoption. At the same time, I don't think that this will change the adoption or success of Bitcoin in the long run. Frankly, activities like this demonstrate the weaknesses and the lack of property rights and the political nature of money and banking today. And if you've been hurt by a system like this, I think that the value proposition of Bitcoin becomes immediately clear.
1: I think, too, there's There seems to me a similarity or some kind of connection between all this discussion we've seen from Brian Armstrong of Coinbase and then today Kraken announces they're pulling their staking program in the U.S. Seems like the SEC also just released a video as we record about 21 hours ago talking about the dangers of staking your crypto. It's all kind of coming together in a way like they're they're taking a hard stance against hosted staking. Like if you're Coinbase and you're offering hosted staking, they're taking a very close look at what you're doing. And in the case of Kraken, they weren't actually doing full fledged staking. They were doing more like speculating and they got busted for it. This moving behind the scenes to shut down the access to the banking system and to also shut down some of these services like staking. It seems like it's going to be pretty disruptive for a while still. People were getting really excited about a potential bull run coming, but this seems like it's going to inject a lot of uncertainty into the market. And it's probably, probably good to get this stuff cleaned up right now. I don't like this, this way of making regulation. It, I think it, it screws innovators. I think it screws small business people who don't really get clear guidance from the SEC or from the lawmakers. So they go try something innovative and new, and then they discover through punishment that they've decided that's not a system that they're going to allow. And in some cases, they're right. In some cases, it feels like the wrong way to go about it. It feels like this has got to be the most consumer hostile, most innovation hostile approach, but it's what we have. And we're going to just watch it play out during this market.
0: I think a lot of psychopaths have draped themselves in the flag of innovation. A lot of Silicon Valley VC garbage tries to pass itself off as innovation. And frankly, I think that's just the cost of doing business if you want to have vibrant and interesting technological and business developments.
1: I agree. But let's just let's frame it. Let's frame it locally, because I think you're right, except it can also screw guys like you and I. Like if there was some sort of decision about lightning channels or boosts or something in there that lightning was a security, you know, some ridiculous thing that screwed up what we're doing, I think we'd feel a little bit differently all of a sudden.
0: Oh, 100%. And I'm not defending the policy. I'm just pointing out kind of why I think emotionally many people don't have a problem with sort of, quote unquote, anti-innovation. Right rules like this. Right. Yeah. I get you. And I agree. It's very likely that something we're doing today, running lightning channels, accepting boosts, communicating potentially with people who are under the age of 17 via boosts, that might be illegal. In fact, that probably is illegal in Europe. So we're all breaking the law. At the same time, when you say it out loud, it doesn't really sound very reasonable to restrict or curtail those activities.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, it's like restricting, you know, data over the network, right? Like how, how do you even can't even verify that somebody's a certain age before they can transmit.
0: Right. It would just completely break our model of digital systems and authentication. He'd have to KYC the network connection. Yeah. And then, oh, well, what about this false KYC data? Okay. We'll just put microchips in everyone's brain. <laughs> the solutions here aren't great.
1: I wish there was some other approach that didn't require, let everybody try. Because what happens is, like you say, these psychopaths prey on consumers. You know, everybody who's lost their money lost their money. It's gone now. Like everything Gary does now, he's fixing the barn door after the cows have come home. He's basically can claim these protecting consumers during the next bull run.
0: I have trouble believing that because I cannot find any news about investigations of Lido Finance. Oh, uh, yeah. Lido Finance that controls more than half of all staked Ethereum. It's a centralized staking as a service provider. They sell a derivative token so you can still trade your staked Ethereum even though you're just trading a claim on it that has to be honored by Lido, that's literally a security because you wouldn't have staked your Ethereum if you didn't think you were going to get a yield and it would all go up in value and you're benefiting from the collective efforts of others of Lido Finance and setting this up for you. So this is totally passes the Howey test. They must be already working with the SEC. How are they getting away scot-free?
1: They got it because otherwise you're right. They should be like, Gary's number one and he's going after. But the fact that he doesn't even ever mention them makes me suspect maybe they've already got an open communication channel.
0: Because I remember when Fireblocks accidentally burned the keys for 30,000 staked Ethereum or something. But if someone like Lido just really screwed up and accidentally just borked half of Ethereum or 25%, that would just be so mm, chef's kiss.
1: Well, we are, I think, in a precarious time. I don't say that lightly, but I I mean, what's Binance going to do if it can't get access to funds? What are all these crypto companies going to do if they can't get access to money anymore? Not
0: a good time to have funds on an exchange. Not a good time to be an exchange.
1: (laughs) Not a good time to have your funds there. Not a good time to have them so locked up. You can't even withdraw them (laughs) because they haven't built it into the protocol yet. (laughs) Oh man, man, you ETH stakers, you really (laughs) are rolling the dice. (laughs) It's impressive.
0: In economics, we have an article that I think will be very fun for economics and monetary economic wonks. This is from... Fed guy, who is his name is Joseph Wong. He was a former trader, I think, at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And now he has a blog that it feels like he has one foot in the Fed's shadow and one foot kind of looking almost critically at them. But he hasn't really gone the full way and spat in his former employer's face and revealed their lack of clothes. So he's an interesting mix of kind of criticism of the Fed, but also he sort of subscribes to some of their orthodoxy. And one... interesting aspect of this article, which has a punchy title of Come Hell or High Water. And as, uh, this article is just about how the Federal Reserve has changed their framework describing quantitative tightening. And this could effectively mean that they can just quantitatively tighten as long as they want. And there are a couple interesting, I think, logical errors here. So the Fed guy, Joseph, seems to think that a large Fed balance sheet, equals large amounts of liquidity that have been added to the banking system because the quantitative easing is when the Federal Reserve uses dollars they create to buy high-quality assets from counterparties. There's a couple of large counterparties that they deal with, and the Fed takes these securities, they put them on their balance sheet, and they give these large counterparties something called bank reserves, which is like money. And the argument is that actually bank reserves are not really like money. You know, you can't just spend them. They're more just like a balance sheet entry that's useful for regulatory reasons.
1: Are they collateral in a sense? Can I loan money out based on the value of that collateral?
0: Not really. I think only to another massive counterparty who already has a huge amount of bank reserves, so they Mm. don't really need it. Okay. In a sense, there's a paradox here because it seems that as the Federal Reserve has exclaimed that they're doing quantitative easing, they might actually be withdrawing monetary liquidity from the global financial system because high-quality U.S. Treasury debt is actually a form of dollars, a form of financial system dollar that can be used for all sorts of financial transactions. So there's a paradox here that Joseph doesn't quite grok. Another interesting point of view has to do with reverse repo balances. And so as the Fed has sucked liquidity out of the banking system with quantitative easing, they've also made this facility available called reverse repo. So a repurchase agreement is an agreement where I give you a security and you give me some money and I do something with the money, but I've agreed to buy back that security from you the next day. I'm unlocking some liquidity from my securities short term. Does that make sense?
1: Okay. And so like a stock, is that kind of security we're talking about?
0: Could be a stock, but generally it's bonds. So generally okay. government debt. So
1: this is something that corporations will go buy up so they can they can kind of do this?
0: I think it's more of a financial business, hedge fundy type thing to do. Mm, okay. But banks do this. A lot of entities that have a lot of financial assets use repo to get access to short-term cash.
1: So they have a lot of cash for some whatever reason temporarily.
0: So what is a reverse repo? A reverse repo is you give me cash and I give you securities. So if you look at this chart that Joseph has on his blog, this reverse repo facility just shoots up in a straight line in 2020. And since 2021, it's been up at like a, I don't know, 79 degree angle. It's up so steep. So what this means is the banking system wants treasuries. They don't want this bank reserve cash. And so with one hand, the Fed tries to create quantitative easing by buying buying securities. They actually create tightness and less liquidity in the system by doing this. So they open up this reverse repo window to try and inject liquidity back in, because even though it's obvious that quantitative easing actually tightens financial conditions and reduces financial market liquidity, they can't stop doing it because if they do, they'll admit that they've been idiots for you know 15 years now or 13 years. It's crazy. It's actually crazy. It really does seem
1: like they've basically just come up with another way to do it on the sly.
0: When I read this and think about it, it makes me think of someone who really takes themselves too seriously and can never admit that they're wrong. <laughs> so I think that's kind of part of the frustration with people who have been watching the Fed and thinking about monetary economics for a while. Like the people in charge are doing some things that are really obviously done, yes. but they've been doing them so long that they need an out. They need a way to say, okay, we're going to stop doing this because something new has changed and we were right all the time.
1: They're really careful with the language. You know, our buddy Jerome Powell there has been working since November of 2021 to get unemployment to 4.7%. He has not been successful at that. He's been the opposite of successful at that. Unemployment is what? Like at a 50 year low right now. The job number was over 500,000 while he's been working since 2021 in November to try to get the unemployment rate up.
0: But the problem is he's trying to increase an unemployment rate that has been jiggered to reduce its reflection of unemployment because we have Record low labor market participation.
1: Right. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. (laughs) He's picking the wrong number.
0: Some would say, oh, well, you're picking and choosing, dad, because there are a lot of old people who have retired. They're no longer participating in the labor market. And I would say, well, I don't think I am because in my city, there's 30,000 homeless people who are not participating in the labor market. Right. Where did they come from? What's going on? These are people who've been kicked out of the economy, essentially, and can't survive. So there is huge amounts of people, of potential workers who were simply annihilated by the lack of job opportunities and kicked out of any metric that tracks their unemployment.
1: I remember when I went on my first big country cross country road trip and I expected to be wondered and what I was was sad because I realized there were so many people that lost their job and lost their home in 2008 and were now living in RVs on the road. And that was years ago. And it is only, that number has only increased. And it's, you're right, they cut it off. It it drops off. But plus, also, he just doesn't really have all of the strings he can pull to to just To create mass numbers of unemployment when the economy is still recovering from shutdowns. I mean, we're still we're still adding jobs back from that whole period of time. So he's got that going against him as well.
0: Labor markets are a massive ship, and so they're spinning the wheel of the ship, and the ship is turning to unemployment, but it moves slowly. And so he's like, "Oh, we need we need to turn faster." But actually, you're going to end up overcorrecting. It's like with all those tech jobs you pointed out that are being cut. They haven't been cut yet. They're planned. They're in the pipeline. That process from from someone working at a company to getting into the unemployment pool, that can take several months if the company has, you know, severance packages and other, other things going on.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially like sometimes you go to re- retrainment programs too, for a bit. Yeah. it uh, takes a long time. I was looking at a previous cycle, I think it was 2009. Can't remember exactly now because it's a couple of days ago. And uh, the unemployment was unusually strong. And at just about the point we're at now, there was discussion of soft landing, uh, good employment numbers, and then... As the year went on, the employment number just kind of dropped off a cliff. It's like all of the ch- all of that stuff finally caught up. Who knows though? Because again, like you've pointed out, this number is going to trend in the right direction for a long time. This is like a gift of many future administrations if they keep this calculation. Because I th- I can't remember the exact year. I know you and I looked it up at one point, but it's something like if you've been unemployed for more than a year and change or something like that, you're basically not on that number anymore. That unemployment number doesn't represent you anymore. You've been dropped off.
0: And this is what I talked about last week, which was. It's not uncommon prior to a recession for there to be a lot of kind of bullish, positive news. Oh, it's not going to be that bad. And then the dump. suddenly it is. Also, when you were talking about that RV trip, did you see that movie Nomadland? I heard that was really good. Yeah,
1: yeah it's sad, but it's good. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a downer. Um, it's, but it definitely is a, a bit of a reality pill to that hashtag van life that you see on social media.
0: I had to do some car repair this week. And so I've been watching a lot of videos about how to do stuff to my vehicle. Yes, me too, actually and there were these videos of people who have turned my car into their van life home kept on peeking in and Uh it's just they're so low quality now like the the production quality is so low that i'm like oh no yeah you're coming to van life too late it's already over stop
1: yeah well that's you know the problem is when you start living the hashtag van life you start thinking well how do i monetize this so i can so i can actually do this all the time and then like, well, I guess I'll do social media. Well, guess what? That's what everybody else figured out too.
0: I just feel like it's rapidly spiraling to only fans in a fan, you know? Yeah,
1: probably. That may be true. Well, don't worry. Their Earn to Play games will come along and they'll get their crypto and that's how they'll make
0: it. Do you know what people used to do 10 years ago? They would go to Thailand and they would do like online surveys where you get paid five bucks or something to do a survey. And because they had a US bank account, they could accept the money or PayPal for these surveys. And then they'd work for a couple hours doing some this. BS online. And then they'd have, you know, 25 bucks, which you can live an okay life if you're, if you don't have high expectations in Thailand.
1: You must've read my retirement plan. That's kind of what I got going so far for my retirement is I'm just going to go podcast somewhere where it's
0: a lot cheaper to live. (laughs) You leave this stuff online. Everyone's reading it.
1: I know. I trigger people when I say that. Then they boost in and they're very concerned. I'm kidding. I am making a joke. If you give it a five or 10 years, I think your buddy down there in El Salvador is going to have everything all really nice and dialed in. Probably going to be a great place for us to live. Are you being serious? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <I> couldn't tell. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, as serious as you can be when you're joking about a man becoming a dictator, taking over the place and cracking down on crime. But yes, oy,
0: I am oy, joking. Hey, hey. On that positive note, let's talk about privacy or the lack of privacy on Telegram. For some reason, The Bitcoin slash crypto community has really embraced Telegram.
1: It's popular in Linux and open source, too. I am probably the one responsible for a lot of JB people using it because years ago, let me take you back a bit, before we had all the options on messaging we had, you had things like Viber, you had SMS. There weren't a lot of great options for a messenger that was mobile first, that would work okay in limited reception, that you could do group chats. And Telegram offered some of these features really early on, and they did it in a good app that also had a desktop client for Linux. And so I think that just kind of led to a lot of adoption in the Linux community and other communities as well. You know, I, I think most people actually are very unaware of any ties to Russia. And the reason why I bring that up is because for years now, I have been making it kind of clear to people that the encryption system it uses is not to be trusted. Its connections to Russia and its obvious pressures that the, the Russian government will be putting on it are a concern. And people, you know, they, they oh, okay. And they just go about using it.
0: Yeah, uh, I think people generally don't, switch until something really shocking happens. And I don't think it's happened yet, but essentially anti-Putin activists in Russia are discovering that Russian security forces don't just have access to their telegram messages, they have live access to their telegram messages. And so one explanation is that the Kremlin has bought many, many licenses for Pegasus spyware from the Israeli NSO group and are infecting thousands of activist phones with rootkit-level malware so that they can just control the phones remotely and see everything that's going on. Or more simply and cheaply, Telegram just gives access to their backend to the Russian security forces, which means there's no such thing as privacy on that platform. And, you know, I, ugh, I still use it for talking to some people because they're on there, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I really wish mm-hmm. I could delete it completely.
1: Yeah. I, I keep an eye on a project called Fluffy Chat because it is a Telegram style UI for Matrix. So it's good for Telegram converts who want the same sort of UI setup, but maybe just want an open source decentralized backend, but it's not there yet.
0: I mean, why not Matrix? Matrix seems so great from my perspective, because it's like all the functionality of Slack, except... You can host your backend, or Jupiter Broadcasting can, if you're a total moocher. I think lots of reasons. I mean, Telegram's slightly simpler, a little bit
1: easier to get going. I mean, you got to give them your phone number and all that. So it's it's like you said, the people just, that's what they're on, and they haven't had a good enough reason to move. We've seen a pretty sizable... Um, uptake. I mean, you see the JB matrix is pretty busy, and um, so there's there is people that choose it over Telegram for sure, but I think there's just a lot of a network effect around Telegram. You got other chats here that are on there, friends, other group chats you're in, so it just kind of keeps you on there.
0: Check out the article if you've ever done something on Telegram that you don't want the FSB to know about. Well, then.
1: Friends, let me tell you about the uh, Self-Hosted podcast. Brand new episode just came out. Just as we uh, recorded the new episode over there. Go to self-hosted.show for the new episode. Uh, Alex is getting a whole bunch of new networking gear. He talks about that. He also had a Proxmox cluster go real sideways. I try to impart a little wisdom. We'll see if it uh, sticks. And then uh, I realize just how horrible my Wi-Fi cameras
0: are slamming my network. self show Episode 90 just went out. Go check it out. Oh, congratulations on 90 episodes. Why did you have a cowboy accent? when you read that ad (laughs)
1: did i now i don't know i think it's i think it's the uh brain fog it just slips into cowboy mode
0: sometimes okay i didn't even know i did it well i wish i could play the tape back to you because it was very (laughs) pronounced so in bitcoin education what do we cover first the crazy awesome looking new cold card or bitcoin optech now let's save the cold card save let's let's eat our veggies first bitcoin optech 237 has some great stuff another discussion about transcriptions which is nfts on bitcoin a summary of a call about mitigating lightning network jamming jamming attacks are or you know ddos attacks are kind of a big concern on the lightning network and a summary of a bitcoin core pr review club meeting this meeting is every wednesday should totally check it out if you're interested in bitcoin development i've uh, participated in meetings before and i am not a c programmer but i was able to follow along with some of the discussion. I learned so much. And Gloria Zhao, who runs those meetings, is really cool. And there is also notable code and documentation changes. So if that's the sort of stuff that tickles your fancy, you should read that section. Do we want to talk about ordinals a bit more? All right. All right. I I did manage to catch your coverage last episode. I thought you did a good job of kind of summarizing it up. Yeah, thanks. I was missing you during that. Also, did you notice the audio is somehow worse whenever you're not there? Yeah, no, it didn't seem that bad to me, but you know, I'll take that. So there are some concerns ongoing about how the new NFTs on Bitcoin protocol is slamming the blockchain with data. And I could see based on my node that 12 hours ago, there was a 3.9 megabyte block. And when I looked at it, I don't have the ordinal software running, but I could Look at the transactions, and there were just some huge data transactions in there. The sort of transactions that are generally considered like exchange withdrawal transactions when an exchange batches a hundred or thousands of withdrawals together to customers. But these were top root transactions, so I believe that they were ordinals. And they are sitting there in the witness data. They are being stored on every node in the world. And that stresses some people out because it's comparatively a lot of data versus a 1.2 megabyte block, which is kind of the average without ordinals inside.
1: Yeah, I, I have to admit it. It is a little uncomfortable to see it. It just is weird. It's like 1 meg, 1.5, 1. 1.5, 5, 1. 5, 1. 1.8, 3.7 meg. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm like, what am I? Is that just now going to sit on my hard drive forever? Okay, I guess. There's other crap in there already, I suppose.
0: It was always possible because the way that the SegWit upgrade counts witness data means that Bitcoin blocks have a maximum size of four megabytes. So there was always an incentive to figure out how to store more data in the witness field. But Casey figured it out with ordinals. And now NFTs on Bitcoin, which were always possible, are just a bit cheaper. And so there's a lot of people minting NFTs on Bitcoin. You can see on ordinals.com, there's just all all the crypto punks and unicorns and all sorts of stuff. Pretty exciting. And potentially worrying because, right, data on Bitcoin. But you can't stop it. And frankly, I think that this activity gets priced out pretty quickly.
1: That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking this is something that is doable pretty much now. Um, And perhaps it gives us a little bit of experimentation around scaling and thinking around scaling for when we have a lot of network activity. But it seems like if the uh, fees start to go up and the network starts getting busy and there's some sort of run going, you know, in a while, This kind of activity just sort of gets priced out of existence.
0: The Bitcoin network is designed to survive state-level attacks. If it cannot survive some JPEGs spamming the blockchain, I don't think it's going to make it. So I'm not too concerned. (laughs)
1: Yeah. It can be like, come on kids, let's let's focus on making really sound money and and getting, you know, as much adoption as that as possible. But no, okay, we wanna we wanna encode more JPEGs to the blockchain. Okay. You know, we did that before. Okay, all right, okay, no, all right, okay, let's 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 do it again. All right. It's not gonna break anything, it's just annoying in that sense. I didn't see this one coming. I mean, what well, they wouldn't tell me, right? But the Cold Card folks, we love Cold Card Mark four, which uh, is made by, rem- remind me of their name? CoinKite. Thank you, CoinKite. And uh, it's a fantastic Bitcoin-only hardware wallet. This week, they announced a brand new, larger unit that, honestly, it looks a lot like a BlackBerry, and they're calling it the Q1. And it's like a translucent BlackBerry with a full-on QWERTY keyboard on the thing.
0: It looks so nerdy and awesome. When I saw this, I just thought, why do we need, who needs this? Like, why do we even need this? And My only idea is that if larger organizations are doing Bitcoin custody and Bitcoin transactions, and you have to do kind of complicated multi-sigs where maybe two people in the company have to collaborate to send money out to create accountability and auditing, this would be a great terminal because it's got a big screen. You can see everything on there. It looks really robust. You can type in big passphrases, maybe even usernames. I mean, if you can get this thing talking to Microsoft Active Directory. Now we're (laughs) cooking with uh, bacon. There you
1: go. Yeah, just stick a Wi-Fi chip on there. Yeah, it's got um, a big big QR code scanner. Like it's got a dedicated optical chip with a dedicated LED light for scanning QR codes. It's got NFC like the Mark IV does. It's got two micro SD slots, which is interesting. You can power it with three AAA batteries or you you can use like, you know, five volt USB or something like that too. And the screen is 320 by 240. It's a 3.2 inch diagonal size screen. I could see like the idea being is maybe like a multi-sig setup like you're saying where you're scanning a QR code and you're inputting that a passphrase into this device. It's a pretty complete alternative. I mean, I, I I also just love the look of it too. And the pricing's not bad. It's 199 bucks. it looks like.
0: I think that this will kill, or maybe the goal here is to kill every cold card competitor. Because remember there was Foundation devices that forked the cold card firmware and then created a competitor with VC Money and Rodolfo Novak, the partner in charge of CoinKite. I think there's also an anonymous person there as well, he lost it when Foundation Devices did that. And he changed the cold card firmware license, so it was no longer an MIT license, and now it's a some different, more restrictive license that's basically, you can use this as long as you're not competing with me in business, which... I don't know. Maybe that makes sense. But this looks like this would kill any competitor because it's got batteries. You can put in batteries so you don't need that uh, power from the USB-C. And they're
1: removable, too. So if you have this thing for years and years, you don't have to worry about some built-in lithium swelling and dying.
0: So I think this might just be a competitor killer as well. And it looks really easy to use, whereas a cold card, you know, was a little fiddly with the just the number keyboard, maybe.
1: Yeah, yeah, this would make
0: the setup process just a lot quicker. And just to review, the term hardware wallet is kind of misleading, right? Because to interact with a Bitcoin blockchain, you need a software wallet that can broadcast a transaction to the network. And so a hardware wallet, if it doesn't have network access, it's not really a wallet. What it is, is a signing device. And so the Cold card, the whatever other Cold hardware wallets... They actually are not really full wallets. What they are is sort of a castle that protects a private key. You open the gate to let in a transaction that you've taken off of your software wallet. The signing device signs it, and then you take the transaction, you put it back into an internet-connected device. Good to keep in mind how all this works. And there's not actual coins in there. There are no coins anywhere, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Confusing.
1: Yeah, and some of the terms we use and stuff like coins and Bitcoin. I mean, I, I know I've i mentioned this to you before, but we do get questions from people who are trying to figure out how to do the boosting. And they ask, how do they convert their Bitcoin into SATs? And then send them in. And it's a confusing thing because they think there's different tokens. They think there's a Bitcoin token and then they think there's sat tokens. And
0: There actually is no Bitcoin. There are only sats.
1: Right. What you have to remember is there is no Bitcoin. There's only 100 million sats.
0: (laughs) For a Bitcoin. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. Consider joining the show Matrix channel, probably the best way to get in touch and ask questions. Details in the show notes. And we have some great boosts this week.
1: Baffo comes in. Good to see you again, Bafo. 33,570 sats. Baffo is back. Nice cast. Mum nice m- boost Baffo. M- mega
0: boost. Thanks yeah. so much, Bafo. Sir Lurksalot sent in to boost a lead boost, one, three, three, sat, seven sats, and a mega lead boost, one, three, three, seven, zero sats. Mm-mm. Sponsors, dad said that word again. Dear other listeners, you don't have to be a fat cat to drop a few sats. I love that the BDP, BDP, that's our podcast, (laughs) isn't beholden to anyone but listeners. If you do too, then step up if you can and give a little back into the positive feedback loop. Value for value is a participatory sport. Game on. Hey, that is such a nice sentiment. Thank you very much. We really appreciate the support. Well said, Lurks. And Lurks' second boost. Hey dad, I love chapters and find them super useful, especially when a show has a lot of info to digest or is explaining new things to me. In An Antenna Pod, I see you have them. But in Podverse, where I've migrated because of value for value and other podcasting 2.0 features, I see no chapters. Is this something you can fix? Maybe cloud chapters are different, or should I be reporting a bug to Podverse? So thanks a lot for the boost. And this is a persistent issue, which Chris has been helping me to understand. And as far as I can tell, we need to produce cloud chapters to be fully compliant with the podcasting 2.0 spec. And previously, I was baking the chapters directly into the MP3 file, but it seems that my RSS seed provider is not reading the file properly anymore, so... I need to develop cloud chapters. So I'm hoping to get that done this week in this episode. So if it works, uh, let me know via boost.
1: Yeah, it can be tricky, right? Because I, I wish Podverse would just fall back and read the stuff that's written to the ID3 tag, uh, but they follow the 2.0 spec, which is to have it up on a URL. Um, so we'll figure it out. Anonymous comes in with 10,000 sats. What are your thoughts on Stratum v2 and its relative progress towards becoming the standard for pools? The Luxor incident seems to have highlighted the need for this. Do you have thoughts
0: on Stratum V2? Absolutely. Stratum V2. This is something that seems very esoteric. And it actually has wide-ranging implications. It's a way for miners who participate in a mining pool to design their own blocks. So this means that you get the benefits of mining in a pool, which means predictable payouts, because right now, if you solo mine and you don't have, say, 10% of the Bitcoin hash rate, you're essentially never going to get a block. And so while you might probabilistically have an income of a $1 million a year, if you only get that on the first and the last day of the year, there's too much non-cash flow time in the middle to survive. So miners join a pool so that they can get a cut of their expected payouts based on their hash rate on a more consistent basis. And this enables mining businesses and not just individuals mining on their own time. The trade-off is that in this current pool model, you end up with the pool producing the block. And that means that if the pool starts censoring transactions or doing fiddly things you don't like, your only option is to leave the pool and join another pool. And since there are only, I think, five or six big pools, your options are kind of limited. So Stratum v2 is a way to mine in a pool, but also construct your own blocks. And it turns out that this is incredibly complicated from a pool management perspective, because once you enable Stratum v2, crazy things can happen, such as miners are building blocks through the pool, but also miners are taking out-of-bound payments If you include my transaction in the block, which is not in the mempool, it's just a private transaction I send you via an email or something, I will actually give you a credit card payment or cash money or a chunk of gold or something that the blockchain is unaware of. And so you can get weird incentives where miners might join a pool, take the payouts from the pool, but also get extra money on the side, which they don't share with the pool. Of course, pools always took out-of-bound payments, and they were expected to share them with their miners, but sometimes they didn't. So it just kind of shifts the center of power in mining further away from the pool and towards the individual miner, in my opinion.
1: That's a fascinating little dive into Stratum V2. Thank you, Anonymous, for sending that in. Marcel comes in with a row of sticks. Best episode titles in podcasting. Thank you, Marcel. I, I caught Marcel coming in last week while I was gone. And Harsh on RoboSats, he does that. You know, he's a RoboSats hater. I got him. He, but neither one of you brought up the fact that not only is this practically impossible to use from an average user standpoint, but RoboSats embraces Lightning, which is really what drew me into using it more often. I, I think that's great from some privacy aspects, but also from just speed and not having to spend a bunch of what you just bought in order to get it back home. That kind of stuff.
0: Maybe we should have a show challenge where I use Bisk. And you use RoboSats, and then we switch, and then we have to be honest about (laughs) our experience or something.
1: Oh, boy. You know, the thing, another reason I always like to mention RoboSats, because really, for it to be successful, it just needs a good network of users. You know, you need more people using it to have more market options and different price points and all that kind of stuff. And that's, I think, sometimes where RoboSats can really kind of fall down is there can only be a very small set of buyers and sellers at certain times. At other times it's pretty, you know, it's pretty banging, but it's just not always.
0: Rapid Mustang One boosts in with 1500 sats. Take my fountain sats. Thanks for all the work you do on the show. They just keep getting better. Oh, uh, flattery will get you anywhere. I've been going back and listening to the other episodes again, and I'm getting more out of them with the knowledge I've gained from the subsequent episodes. Thanks for keeping us up to date. Glad I can give you a little value back, small though it may be. Smiley face. Hey, small scales. Thank you so much, Rapid Mustang.
1: Thanks, Mustang. Mere Mortals podcast came in with uh, two boosts this week. First one, Ticks. Thanks for the rundown on Ordinal's Dad. My general thoughts are that if it's possible to do it on the network, then there should be no moral quality bombs against people doing it, uh sort of like Satoshi Dice back in the day, but I'm not set on stone on this one. Curious to know what your thoughts are. And then they also sent in three thousand two hundred and ten sats to say boosting just cause. Which <laughs> that made me smile. Thanks for your mortals.
0: I think we kinda of covered it today. Yeah. In terms of moral qualms, I have moral qualms all day long. People are going to do things we won't like, and it's got to be okay, because if you can't accept that, then you're like in a state of conflict with so many people, and a lot of things don't work in that situation, in my view.
1: Yep. And, and you know, there's what's that saying about a fool and their money or something like that? There's some element of that as well. Well, thank you, everybody who boosted. And there was some boost that came with no messages, some under the limit. Really great. Thank you, everybody. And keep it up. The support really matters. The show is made possible by your support and you can boost with a new podcast app. Go grab it at newpodcastapps.com. Or if you don't want to switch your dang podcast app, go get Albie, getalbie.com. And you can boost right there from the Bitcoin dad on the podcast index, right? Using the webpage.
0: This has been the Bitcoin dad Pod, recorded on February 10th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin dad. And I'm here sometimes always often (laughs) with me. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.